0: I'd like to introduce dr akbar khan from toronto in canada who is the founder of the cancer medicare center thank you for joining me akbar
1: oh you're welcome it's a pleasure
0: could you tell me when you first heard about ldn
1: yeah we first heard about uh, about ldn uh, about five years ago um it was from uh, from a patient um this is how we hear about a lot of our um, complementary therapies is through patients because um, drugs like this, uh, there's no sponsorship for. Very cheap drugs, generic drugs, uh, drug companies not actively out there promoting these drugs so we hear them we hear about them either through patients or through our own research.
0: Mm-hmm. So did you start using it five years ago?
1: Yeah, well, it was about five years ago and uh, what we did was uh, a patient brought it to our attention so we started doing some research and we found uh, a very useful website um, called uh, www.ldninfo.org, and that website was founded by the doctor who discovered the use of LDN, which was Dr. Bihari, uh, and it's now run by a a colleague of his, Dr. Gluck, and on that website there's a lot of uh, factual information about this medicine, and uh, that's how we really started to learn about it. Mm
0: -hmm. And what's been your experience in that five years of prescribing LDN?
1: Well, what we're seeing is that uh, it's a very useful drug. It's definitely very, very safe. Um, It requires very little monitoring um, in in the way of uh, blood tests um, because it has uh, essentially no toxicity. Um, We are definitely seeing results. Um, What we're finding is that um, it's much better to use the drug in earlier stages of cancer because it does take time to work since it's so gentle. Uh, You know, my estimation would be that it takes uh, two or three months at least before you start to see the results. Um, So I I prefer to use it in earlier stages of cancer, uh, you know, before the patient is is very end stage and have failed all their chemos and are coming to us with a very poor prognosis. So uh, we're definitely seeing results for various types of cancer. And in fact, we have a, a case that is uh, publishable right now uh, of a fellow with a tongue cancer who was told uh, about two years ago when he was diagnosed that uh, his tongue had to be removed and, to treat the cancer. And he absolutely refused because there would be no quality of life. So we treated him with the LDN uh, along with some uh, vitamin D. And uh, now he's in complete remission. Uh, he just sent me his MRI uh, scan uh, a few weeks ago. And I've looked everything over, and and we're going to hope we're hopefully going to publish the case.
0: Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? What other treatments do you use alongside of LDN if patients come to you early?
1: Uh, Well, we we definitely make sure that they're supplemented adequately with vitamin D, uh, and that often means uh, high dose, so so much higher than what the the, uh, standard guidelines would recommend. Um, And we do that with blood monitoring to make sure they don't have toxicity. Um, we also use uh, various natural medicines. Now, that's, that's not my area of expertise, so we have a naturopathic doctor on site who uh, the patients also consult with, uh, and then he'll prescribe appropriate uh, evidence-based natural medicines. Also very gentle, very safe. Um, then for some patients who want a little bit more aggressive therapy, we do intravenous therapies as well. Um, And uh, one of the drugs that we're using is uh, called dichloroacetate, or DCA. Um, That's a more powerful drug than LDN. Also has more side effects uh, and requires more close monitoring. So some people are candidates for that. Um, Then we have uh, a drug which uh, is a copper binding agent, and we use that to create a controlled copper deficiency. And that's been studied very well in the U.S., uh, has been found to work as an angiogenesis inhibitor, to blocking the, the growth of blood supply in tumors. Uh, and it has clinical data behind it as well. It has phase two trials that support its use. So we're using that drug as well. That's called tetrathiomolybdate, molybdate. Um, and we have a number of other off-label drugs, which are, again, they're not approved for cancer, but there is some study behind it that shows benefits in cancer. Uh, an example would be uh, something like ribavirin, which is an antiviral drug, but it also has anti-cancer properties. So that's a small sampling of of what we're doing. And I mean, obviously, there's there's more drugs than that, which probably you don't have time to hear about today. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, what would your opinion be of somebody who's been diagnosed with cancer? What would you suggest they do?
1: Well, um, the ones that uh, are diagnosed with cancer where it's curable. Uh, readily, by conventional means, I would, um, you know, recommend that they should take the conventional treatment. However, there's patients that are diagnosed with uh, rare cancers where the oncologists don't really know what to treat it with because there's, there's no good study behind it. Um, just because it is so rare, it's hard to research it. Uh, so those patients, I think they should be looking elsewhere. Um, and then patients who have been diagnosed with cancer that is metastatic at the outset, and they're being told that it's not curable uh, and the prognosis is not very good with conventional treatments, I think they should be also looking elsewhere. Um, And LDN would be one of the options.
0: Well, thank you very much for sharing your experience with us. I'd like to introduce Dr. Bert Berkson from the United States, who treats patients with cancer and autoimmune conditions using low-dose naltrexone. Dr. Berkson, could you tell us how you heard of LDN? You want to know how
2: I first met L-dose Well, uh, one day a gentleman came into my office about 15 years ago, and he came in with a walker, and he was in terrible pain. He had just been told by a large university cancer hospital, That he had only about a month to live. He had terminal prostate cancer uh, with metastases to his bone. He was in horrible pain. But he also had rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, uh, mixed collagen disease. And I asked him what I could do for him. And he said that he was told he was going to die within a month. And he was in terrible pain, but his wife had senile dementia. And he had had to have a place in a nursing home uh, before he died. And Mm -hmm. I asked him what I could do for him. And he said, would I give him narcotics to help him with the pain so he could uh, accomplish this task? And I said, sure I would. Then he asked me if I ever heard of Dr. Bahari in New York. And I said, no, I haven't. And he said that he was—he uh, heard he was curing cancer and rheumatoid arthritis and other autoimmune diseases. And I said, well, why don't you go up and see him? He said, well, he's just in a, a very small office. Uh, if he was any good, wouldn't he be at one of the big cancer centers? And I had... I previously told him my story about when I was working with alpha-lipoic acid at a big university uh, medical center in the United States and when I published a paper on 79 people waiting for liver transplants and gave them nothing but lipoic acid, 75 regenerated their livers within a month. and. I was all excited, this was published out of our National Institutes of Health, but the University Medical Center uh, wasn't interested in this. They were interested in transplanting livers, not regenerating livers. And I said, they were very angry with me. And I said, probably if this man had some idea about curing cancer, and he was at a big medical center, he might put them out of business. And he decided to go up and see Dr. Bahari. Well, I didn't see him for three years. Three years later, he walked in the office. I thought he died without his walker, just completely normal. And I asked John, how are you doing? And he told me that uh, he had a sinus infection. I asked, what about the cancer? Oh, Dr. Barry cured that in the uh, autoimmune disease, too. Uh, the rheumatoid arthritis and the lupus is under control. Well, I, I, I saw him with my own eyes, but I was re- still very skeptical. And I had a number of patients with various autoimmune diseases. Rheumatoid arthritis, systemic lupus arithmetosis, uh, MS, dermatomyositis. Crohn's disease. And when they would come into the office, uh, they were usually being seen by rheumatologists. I would ask them, do you want to try this and see how it works? And many of them said, no, I'm happy with uh, my expensive drugs with the rheumatologist. And I said, fine. But others said, yeah, let's try this. And the people who tried the low-dose naltrexone, almost all of them, within a month were off all of their expensive, potentially harmful drugs, and were feeling normal. So then a gentleman came in about eight, nine years ago with pancreatic cancer and metastasis of the liver. He was a stage four pancreatic cancer patient. And he was also a patient at a big uh, United States Cancer Center. And they told him there was no hope. They did chemotherapy. It just made him sicker. And the cancers continued to grow. He was told that he would die within a very short time. He should go to hospice and, and um, die there. And he came in with his young wife. And he had a young son. He was only in his 40s. And I asked him if he wanted to try this treatment. And he said, um, of course. Well, within one month, he went back to work as an engineer. And he actually tells a story in Honest Medicine. It was amazing. I, I was amazed by it. Now it's uh, eight years later, almost nine years later, there's still no, no, the cancers haven't grown at one time. They seem to have been gone on um, test scans, but then he stopped treatment and they returned and we put him back on treatment. and The cancers uh, seem to go dormant again. And then I published this uh, information in one of the big cancer journals in the United States. Absolutely uh, no interest whatsoever by American oncology. Nothing. Even when people write uh, this information down and send it to wikipedia it seems to disappear after a day or two which Mm -hmm. i don't understand then a number of other people came in and i gave them the choice you know they were terminal i said you want to try this and many of them said yes and some did extremely well and others uh, didn't but uh, I published another paper uh, not long ago. It was in December of 2009 in one of the big cancer journals And three more people who had terminal pancreatic cancer. And within six months, there was no sign of cancer on the FET scans. And absolutely no interest by the oncology community. Nothing. I'm amazed by this. But, you know... I was originally a professor of microbiology at one of the big universities uh, on the east coast of the United States at Rutgers University. And I decided to do the medical training a little later. I I had the first two years of medical school, and I had about six years plus of education above medical school, but I didn't have the hospital training. I, I had the education, but not the training. And uh, once once I started doing the medical training, I, I saw that in medicine, most doctors, uh, you know, they, they will only really accept information from their specialty group. If it's uh, from somebody else who's not an oncologist and is not a hepatologist, they really uh, shut off their ears and they, they don't want to hear.
0: What other cancers have you treated with low-dose naltrexone?
2: Well, we've had several uh, great successes and uh, several failures. We had one woman who came in with hepatitis C that I've been treating for a long time, and I've published papers on that too. And she did very well. She was a nurse, but she stopped all treatment after she felt good. And, uh, developed, uh, cancer of the liver, a hepatocellular carcinoma. And she came back in again and asked if I could do anything for her. And I said, I don't know, let's try. And we put her on low dose naltrexone an in intravenous sulfonylfolic acid twice, twice a week. Well, maybe six, six months later we did another PET scan. There was no sign of cancer. So that was a remarkable change. Mm-hmm. Then then um, a man came in with uh, a B-cell lymphoma and he had been all over the country at different medical centers and he did not want to do the standard chemotherapy. He refused it. And he had these lymph nodes on his neck and his groin that were as big as uh, softballs. You know, they were like 16 inches in circumference and we put him on two weeks of intravenous lipoic acid and low dose naltrexone at bedtime he stopped the lipoic acid after a short time he stopped living his healthy lifestyle that we recommended went back to his old ways and his wife forced him to take the uh, low dose naltrexone at at bedtime he came back uh, about six months later, and there was no sign of lymphoma anymore. He was completely there. You know, we've had um, several cases like that. Then we've had other cases where the cancer did not clear up, but it actually it seemed to go dormant for long, long periods of time. Various types of cancer. Then one day I received a call from the National Cancer Institute in Washington, our government's cancer institute. I didn't think anybody read the papers. And the chief wanted to know if I could come to Washington and explain to them what I'd been doing. So I was, I was sort of surprised by this. And I, I flew to Washington and spoke about my successes with uh, autoimmune disease and cancer, the group of uh, scientists and doctors, I thought they'd argue with me, but these people were mostly scientific-minded doctors. They actually stood up and applauded. And afterwards, the chief of oncology at one of our uh, Ivy League schools had flown down from north of uh, Washington to hear the speech. And he said he had an aunt who had breast cancer. But I gave him a few minutes and suggest how I treat people, and I did. He said, so, well, how do you treat your cancer patients? So well, I gives them chemotherapy and radiation. But he was interested in low-dose naltrexone for his family member, which I found um, interesting.
0: And what dose do you start people on?
2: Most People, I start at 3 milligrams, and then if they do well on that, I'll um, go up to 4.5. Many stay in 3 milligrams and do very well. Uh, we haven't had any uh, serious uh, side effects such as insomnia or bad dreams, but I always give them a little bit of l or lorazepam. To take the first a few nights when they're on low mobile touch traction, so they can get a good night's sleep. Mm-hmm.
0: What are the gems? Can you share with us?
2: You know, I wrote a couple of chapters in honest medicine, mm-hmm. and I think one of the chapters uh, it was on uh, hypnotic trances in humans. And I was, I, I, I sort of. Described how I was when I was growing up. I, I had a um, relative who, who uh, was a medical doctor from a, a very prestigious medical school in the United States. And whenever the family would talk about him, they would say, well, he's much better than a medical doctor that went to a less prestigious university. And I, I thought, you know, why was that? I mean, why would one university be better than another? Mm-hmm. And they'd say, well, you know, everyone knows this is a better university. I always asked questions. I was sort of, I was sort of a curmudgeon or something. Mm-hmm. But I'd ask questions and I, I believed if he went to this better university, he must be better than a doctor who went to another university. Well, I got married, and I, w- I was a professor at the time, and my wife had repeated miscarriages. The babies would be miscarried in between the fourth and the sixth month. They they were completely healthy babies, and we would ask who heads a very prestigious uh, medical schools heads of gynecology thinking they would really know know more than somebody uh, from somewhere else mm-hmm. and this is uh, 40 years ago and they would keep telling me the same thing get her pregnant again maybe this time you'll you'll uh, she'll carry the baby and this just this just seemed silly to me because she had Five miscarriages, and it was very tough on her and me. Mm-hmm. So uh, one day I went down to the university library where I was working as a professor, and I looked looked through the journals on gynecology, and I saw that there was a doctor in India, in a, in a small town in India. Well, it was a large uh, area of India, who found that if people had repeated miscarriages it was usually due to the doctor, the gynecologist or the obstetrician doing a uh, DNC on the patient after the first miscarriage and lacerating the cervix of the uterus. And He found that if you put a little stitch in there or as he called it a ligature, a little a band around the cervix to provide support, the woman will get pregnant again and, and have uh, normal babies. And the babies could be delivered by a C-section, cesarean section, or uh, they could win the a band and she had the baby normally. Mm-hmm. So I uh, took this information to our uh, prestigious uh, obstetrician from one of the fanciest schools in the United States and showed it to him and he uh, tore it up and threw it in the garbage. (laughs) And he said, uh, you're a microbiologist. Uh, Do I try to teach you about germs? Don't try to teach me about about gynecology or obstetrics. You realize I'm a professor at so-and-so university. And I, I thought, my God, I I was in a hypnotic trance about this. Here's a, a doctor in a small area of India who knows a lot more about gynecology than this uh, fellow who's the head of a department at a big university. So what we did was uh, we found a doctor in uh, New York who had studied with Dr. Shuradkar, uh in India. And um, his name was Martin Kleiman. And we went to see him and see uh, examined and uh, my wife and said, um, you know, get her pregnant again and we'll see uh, what's going on. And we did. And we visited him and he put in this little uh, ligature and she had a normal baby, thank God. And right after we, she had another uh, normal child. And my daughter's a lawyer now, and my son's a medical doctor in practice with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, this sort of broke this idea that somebody who has a lot of prestigious titles knows more than just a, a medical doctor practicing in a small town or with a, a less famous university. And uh, I see this as very true. And then, I remember when, when my research uh, mentor and research partner, Dr. Fred Barter, who was the chief of endocrinology, hypertension, and liver and kidney disease at our National Institutes of Health, when we published that paper on the 79 people with we were waiting for liver transplants, and 75 regrew their livers, regenerated their livers, which just lipolic acid. We published this material, and we went to, to several uh, prestigious universities around the United States uh, speaking on this uh, information. And Dr. Barter would speak first, and uh, he would talk about these remarkable results we were getting with regenerating organs. And he'd finish. And before I'd get up to speak, somebody'd always ask a question. And they'd say, Dr. Barter, you're the world expert on kidney disease, diabetes. You're, you're probably the most, the most well-respected internal medicine doctor in the world. You're chief of National Institutes of Health. You're a kidney expert. What right do you have to treat liver disease? I was shocked by this. Mm-hmm. And rather than saying, give me a break, you, you know, we're giving you some very important information, accept it. But the person who he, he would say, you know, Dr. Bergson serendipitously discovered that we could regenerate livers with this. Isn't this important? And they'd say, Dr. Bergson, he's more of a scientist and he is a medical doctor he should stay in the laboratory and fiddle with his test tubes and stay <laughs> out of liver disease so th- this is sort of this not a trance people are under mm. and uh, I'm sure uh, we've all encountered this in our lives
0: what would you say the future of LBN is? where do you see it going?
2: well when When I was speaking at the National Cancer Institute, one of the people who worked there, one of the scientists came up to me. and says, you know, Berkson, this is amazing, amazing information. I was really impressed by it. But you realize it'll never catch on unless we have a Great Depression. He said that's it's cheap, no one can make a lot of money on it. It's very effective for many different diseases. Drugs companies are interested in a drug for one indication, not something that works for so many things. He said, it'll never catch on unless the economies go, go down the toilet. And My answer was, I hope we never have a great depression so i hope it never catches on in a big way if that's what it takes but i think people should have the information and make their choice mm-hmm. there should be medical freedom if a person wants to uh, do chemotherapy and radiation and extensive surgery that's fine if that's what they want but if they want to try something like low-dose naltrexone and intravenous lipoic acid that's fine with me, too.
0: Well, let's hope that it more than catches on.
2: Yeah, I I think so. You know, I have several patients that come in from all over the world. We have people from Indonesia, from all over Europe, from South America, uh, all over the United States and Canada. And many of them are very wealthy. And I've mentioned to them maybe we could start a group to start supporting supporting research on on, on this you know it's, it really saved your life but you know when it comes to putting out large amounts of money for research most wealthy people want to know what their return on their investment would be i i i don't know what the future is i think I think as more and more people get together, mm. and uh, maybe we could form some type of a group where all of the people that are getting well can support research. I mm. would love to do a, a large study at one of the local universities, but there's no money for it.
0: How much would you say that would take?
2: I have no idea, but it would run into millions of dollars. I know that. Well, you know, in the United States at least, in order to get a a drug through the Food and Drug Administration, it costs hundreds of millions of dollars. And if a pharmaceutical company uh, wants a drug approved, they may spend a billion dollars to jump through all of the hoops for the FDA. Mm -hmm. So they want to protect their, you know, their investment. They've invested this large amount of money They should expect a return on their investment. I mean, I believe in capitalism. Mm. But I think, I think that, I, I think that drugs such as low dose naltrexone have a place too. And I think people should know about it. And these, these people should be able to use it. And compounding pharmacies should be able to make it up. I know in the united states um the fda has been giving compounding pharmacies a hard time and they just don't get the kind of support that they 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 need you know for the general population because most people here at least that if it's if it's a drug from a big company and it's very expensive it has to be better than a drug that costs a few dollars and is off the end. And if the drug company is well known, they know what they're doing much more than a compounding pharmacy, they believe. And if a drug company gets a professor at a Ivy League university to put his name on one of their publications, they think that's more important than um, a An article that comes out of a smaller university somewhere else.
0: Mm.
2: They're they're in this hypnotic trance and I don't know how to break it.
0: Thank you, Dr. berkson for speaking with me today. I really do appreciate it and for sharing your experience of LDN. Any questions or comments you may have, please email me, Linda, L I N D A, at LDNRT.org. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well.